Great. Thanks. Thanks very much, Peter, and thanks for organizing such a stimulating event. I'm very honored to be here. Um, and so today, what I want to talk about is largely some of the measures that can be taken to try and roll back this march uh, of the cultural left through the institutions. Um, but I want to begin by talking about what I think is going on more broadly, which is essentially a Cold War, a battle for freedom, not the same battle that we fought in the second half of the 20th century that many of us will remember, which was about economic freedom, but this time it's about cultural freedom, and the adversary is cultural socialism. The, the idea behind economic socialism, of course, was redistribution of wealth and equalizing the condition, the material condition of people uh, between the working class and the bourgeoisie. Cultural socialism is the same idea except transposed onto cultural, and that is uh, equal outcomes for members of race, gender, and sexual identity groups uh, across all valued positions in society, and protection from harm for these groups, including the most microscopic and imaginary psychological offenses uh, and traumas. So we have this new battle between cultural freedom and cultural socialism, the new Cold War. Accompanying this cultural socialism is wokeness, which, uh, as Emma alluded to, uh, um, the one-line definition of which is uh, the sacralization of uh, race, gender, and sexual identities. And so these historically marginalized groups have been made sacred. And so anytime you say anything that can be construed or manipulated as being in any way offensive uh, to the sensibilities of the most sensitive member of one of these groups, you have committed blasphemy. Um, and so we have this cultural socialism with its attendant religion of wokeness. Um, and I think what's important to understand is in this new Cold War, the cultural socialist side is rising. You know, we have, yes, we have new groups. We have the, the Free Speech Union, the New Culture Forum. We have uh, Academics for Academic Freedom and so on. These new groups are very important. Yes, we have editorials from The Economist, The New York Times, Harper's, and so on, criticizing cancel culture. That's great. But the idea that somehow this is a blip is a complete myth. Um, because that's not the way that culture, were, uh, culture changes. Um, if you can imagine being in 1965 and older generations saying, oh, well, this trend toward people not going to church or listening to rock music, it's just a blip. It's just going to go away. When people are older, they're going to be back in the pews. Well, that's not the way it turned out because a lot of change is generational. People are very open to having their attitudes shifted when they're in their late teens and early 20s. Those attitudes, not totally, but largely solidify and are carried with them as they get older. And so we should expect to see the attitudes that we see in today's 20-somethings transmitted th through the institutions as they get older. And if that's the case, I have some bad news for you, which is that uh, cultural socialism is only just getting started. Because these attitudes that would tend to prioritize uh, equal outcomes for different identity groups over free speech, over reason, over science, due process, um, national tradition, uh, that outlook is much stronger amongst so-called Gen Z and millennials than it is amongst older generations. And so I want to show you uh, if I can get this thing to work. So this is just an example, and you can see this in question after question. Um, 
And this, this is, it's sort of cut off, unfortunately, on the top, but what this is essentially asking people is whether they support Google's firing of the, uh, of the computer engineer, James Damore, from his job for questioning the firm's gender equity ideology in an internal memo, just raising questions and counter-arguments. For that, Damore was fired. Now, if you ask people under the age of, of, in the 18 to 25 age bracket in the US or in Britain, two-thirds of them support the decision by this big corporation to fire James Damore. Two-thirds of 18 to 25-year-olds support Damore's firing, compared to only about a third of the over 55s in Britain and the United States. So what we're looking at is a generation that is substantially more amenable to cultural socialism and less amenable to cultural freedom than older generations. And they are going to be entering workplaces. They're going to be emerging into positions of power where they're going to have control over policy and decision making. I think this is a looming catastrophe and we should be very clear about the challenge that lies ahead of us. Because if nothing is done, our culture of liberty and national tradition is in danger of being substantially deformed out of all recognition. So in this talk, what I want to do is to try and talk about some things we may be able to do to address this problem. Because this problem has to become the number one problem for conservatives in particular. Conservative media and especially politicians have got to elevate this cultural struggle against cultural socialism the way they did with the issue of, for example, leaving the European Union an issue which was relatively low priority, but which rose up people's priority lists. This is already happening in the United States in a major way. If you look at politicians like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, Ron DeSantis in Florida, who may become the next presidential, uh, Republican presidential nominee, they have elevated these issues substantially to the point where amongst Republican voters, culture war issues are now a leading uh, issue for voters. They're just below immigration and above religion. So they occupy now a very significant place. They're deciding elections. And the important thing about culture war issues is if you look at public opinion, the public generally leans two to one in favor of cultural freedom and against cultural socialism. And I want to show you a couple of charts that will uh, reveal that. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, next slide. Ah, okay. Uh, anyway, um, these are not showing very well. But what you can see is that the question that is asked here um, essentially is whether to teach uh, children in class that Britain is a racist society. Should school children be taught that Britain is a racist society? Now, amongst those who identify as on the right, roughly 7 in 10 are strongly opposed to teaching school children that Britain is a racist society. Amongst those on the left, only 9% are strongly in favor of teaching children that Britain is a racist society. There's a major difference here that right-wing voters are largely united in opposition to critical race theory and attacks on national heritage. Left-wing voters are divided. 41% of them oppose teaching children that Britain is a racist society, for example. So, these issues actually unite the right and they divide the left. Another example, next slide please, um, whether this will work or not. So this question is really asking about the Vice Chancellor uh, of Sussex University who defended Kathleen Stock's uh, right to free speech against those who were mobbing her. Um, and what we see here is that um, there's a big, big difference between far left 
voters, uh, people who, who identify as far left and those who identify as moderate left. Amongst those who identify as far left, six in 10 disagreed with the vice chancellor defending stock. And amongst those who were moderate left, barely two in 10 disagreed with the vice chancellor. So a much stronger support for freedom, free speech amongst moderate left than amongst far left. And again, we see a major division within the left between moderate left and far left, whereas the right almost completely united. So here we have a perfect wedge issue for politicians on the right to go after in a big way because it splits the left and unites the right. That's what's happening in the United States, and um, we can see that that's been um, we can see that that's been used very successfully by politicians uh, such as Glenn Youngkin, and I believe in the future this will be a very important issue that is helping to peel voters away from the Democrats into the Republican fold. So the question really is, well, what is the Tory party in Britain doing? Why are they so timid on these issues? Now, of course, there are some people like Kemi Badnock, Munira um, Mirza, Oliver Dowd, and there are a few politicians who are willing to speak up on this issue and to do something about it, but most of them are running scared of the media, who, and they're, they're running scared of progressive uh, institutions that would accuse them of quote-unquote stoking the culture war, when in fact actually the culture war is being waged primarily by the left in elite institutions, and these are defensive measures attempting to try and counteract the overwhelming power um, of, the cultural so of cultural socialism, which is creeping through our elite institutions. So what I want to talk about next is what has to happen for this situation to change. I mean, and I think the first thing that actually has to happen is within the right of the political spectrum, that um, the battle against cultural socialism, these cultural issues have to become the main reason for being a conservative, not reason number five or ten after markets and after foreign policy, reason number one. That is increasingly happening in the United States. It has to happen here as well, because only if that happens, only if conservative parties are actively campaigning on these issues, are they going to get the profile that they deserve, and then are we going to be able to take the action that we need to take to address the problem. Um, so next slide, uh, if, you, if we would. Yeah. Okay. So here's just a, a sort of laundry list of, of what I think we might be able to do to try and counteract uh, the influence of cultural socialism in our elite institutions, which have a role then in shaping the consciousness of younger generations. The first is we have to ab abandon this notion that um, governments shouldn't regulate. We actually, government, elected government is the last institution that, re that reflects the views of the mainstream of the population. So we need to use government intelligently to try and reform the unelected and opaque um, intermediate institutions, government bodies, um, uh, monopoly corporations, for example, uh, that are not accountable and not scrutinized by the media to anything like the same extent as governments are. That means um, we need to have a program for regulating and auditing elite institutions, beginning, for example, with protection for free speech, um, the higher education freedom bill in this country is a good example of that, where universities not only will be uh, obliged to protect and promote free speech, but they will be audited on their performance, liable to fines. People are going to be able to appeal around their universities uh, in order to weaken the power of the universities. Their ability to enforce cultural socialism uh, on faculty and students is going to be greatly weakened by this bill. But, of course, what this requires is 
is that this be uh, sort of sustained, that the government follow through on its promise uh, to ensure that the that, that free speech is protected and that the dictates of the Higher Education Freedom Bill are actually enforced in real time. It's not enough to make a high-sounding statement because there are going to be all kinds of attempts to defy free speech in favor of social justice, so-called. And, and so what is very important is that there has now been an office uh, the director of academic freedom with 10 staff that will proactively monitor all of the policies of universities and the way they are implementing them. It, in order for that to work, you have to have the right people who are in these bureaucracies, who believe in the mission of counteracting this ideological indoctrination, who believe in the mission of making sure these institutions do not deviate from what they've signed up to and what is in the law. So, where, where I think we have a long way to go are bodies such as the EHRC or Ofcom, which have yet refused to issue guidance telling us exactly when, um, where free speech is protected and where it is not in terms of uh, so-called hate speech or... Um, so, so what we actually need is much clearer guidance on the, on the idea that free speech comes first and offended sensibilities come second. That has to be clear across government. The third thing is political neutrality. We need to enforce political neutrality across all of these institutions. And that means, for example, in schools, we cannot have critical race theory uh, being taught to students. We cannot have political indoctrination occurring in schools. Now, I know that's the law on the books, that schools aren't allowed to politically indoctrinate, but we have a lot of evidence that, in fact, many of them are doing precisely that. And in Brighton, for example, when this was, and some of you will have been involved in, in, in exposing this critical race theory program that was being pushed in Brighton schools, Ofsted came in, uh, investigated, and said, oh, they're, they're, not, they're not actually politically indoctrinating, despite the fact that what they were doing was very much political indoctrination on critical race theory grounds. It was, it was blatant, and yet Ofsted comes in and doesn't enforce the what's, on, what's on the books already, which says you're not allowed to politically indoctrinate. So the only way that that chain is going to be maintained is if we have pressure from the media on government to enforce uh, political neutrality in these institutions. And this, this holds equally for big tech algorithms. Those should be open to scrutiny from regulators to ensure that they're not politically biased and they're treating people equally on the grounds of political ideology. We need to push for political beliefs to be a protected characteristic alongside race and gender. What I think we also need is, is if we want to talk about equity and diversity and uh, protected characteristics, I think there should be what's called equivalent action, that any action an institution takes in terms of gender and race equity must be matched by action on political and ideology, uh, diversity and equity. So in universities, if they're really worried about racial underrepresentation, they've got to be doing equally as much on uh, the underrepresentation of conservatives, for example, on university faculties. Uh, who are outnumbered uh, around 9 to 1, by the way, um, in the social sciences and humanities. So that's a much bigger issue than the very slight um, inequities on race and gender. It's very important for people who are against cult cultural socialism to be placed in government positions on these regulatory bodies. People who believe in the mission of fighting back against wokeness um, need to be in these positions on these bodies so that they can enforce freedom of speech, political neutrality, and so that they can bring some balance, for example, to the school curriculum, so that kids learn as much about Stalin and the Cultural Revolution as they do about Jim Crow and the Nazis. Um, it needs to be balanced, and it's not balanced right now, and that's something that we very much need to see. 
Um, in order to get there, I'm afraid that the anti-woke conservative side is dramatically underpowered. It needs to get its people into elite institutions. But in order to do that, it needs to develop talent and develop a pipeline for getting people who are on board with this uh, fight against cultural socialism into those elite institutions. In the US, with the Supreme Court, um, there is an institution called the Federalist Society that vets and nurtures uh, conservative um, graduates of law schools who will form, who will be selected uh, to be judges uh, in the United States and ultimately selected to the Supreme Court. We need that kind of organization uh, in order to, to nurture talent and get those people into the government bureaucracy, into schools, into universities, and so forth. Uh, so nurturing a policy network and nurturing talent to enter the bureaucracy. We also need to be able to hold conservative politicians in particular to account when they, when they simply ignore cultural issues or in fact take the woke side on these issues. Now again, I don't agree with a lot of what the National Rifle Association does in the US. Um, I disagree with a lot of their stances. But they are extremely effective. And what they do is they rate um, members of Congress on their, uh, on their record on these issues. And I actually think MPs should be rated, for example, on their record on culture war issues. And they should be held um, scrutinized and held to account if they are not uh, doing anything about these issues. Um, and so I think greater scrutiny of conservative MPs to the point where we can see deselection of MPs that are not on board with um, uh, combating cultural socialism sufficiently, I think that would be a very effective way of inst instilling some focus in the conservative party and making it a, a little bit more attentive to this issue. Um, and then, of course, it's not just the conservatives. If conservative parties can win on culture war issues, that is going to throw parties of the left on the defensive, and it's going to empower the more sensible liberal leftists. And I'm thinking in the US of commentators like Matthew Iglesias, for example, or people like James Carville, um, people who are telling the Democrats, look, we're not going to win elections if we keep pushing this woke garbage. We've got to get back to a, a more sensible center. We have to endorse patriotism. Those are the kinds of people on the left that we need to empower, uh, but they're not going to be empowered unless the right starts winning elections and forcing the left to change. Um, so again, these are just some ideas that I've had, and then of course, what Emma says, this idea of everyday resistance, you know, don't accept new buzzwords and, and challenge new policies, I think that's very important as well. Uh, but I also think there's a lot we can do politically uh, to sort of change the, <coughs> change the mood, mood music that is really setting the agenda in politics. Okay. Um, Eric, before we uh, turn to the audience, um, I just want to ask you, you the, your very last point there, and you said that the rights have got to start winning elections. Um, could I suggest that... For, that seems to be such a difficult thing for them to do, uh, to take on these issues. Um, and if you look back to Brexit, in fact, it was pressure from pressure groups. But it, okay, UKIP was a political party, but it was a sort of pressure group to start with. Don't you think that the pressure has got to come from outside now? I mean, in other words, to fight the Tories. If, you know, when it comes to the Tories, it seems to me that being fearful of losing their electoral seats it's a thing that tends to bring them on board. No? Yes, uh, you're, you're, you are right. So I think 
there's certainly an opening for a third force, uh, a similar type of third force that can raise these issues yes. and sort of hold the government to account or hold the Tories to account yeah. and might lead to a sort of reforming impulse uh, within their ranks. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's not uh, incompatible with what I'm saying yeah. that, that there needs to be that kind of pressure to force people to, to, to sort of reform. Yeah. Okay, uh, oh, lots of questions. Uh, Al Mehmet, Chairman of Migration Watch. Eric, terrific, as usual. Thanks. Common sense <laughs> of a, a right-wing right academic. You're a rare breed, my friend. <laughs> um, you, you haven't mentioned, and, and indeed in the, the course of this morning, terrific morning, Peter. Thank you for arranging it. It's about time that the right started getting its act together. Um, thank you. Migration my area hasn't really been mentioned and yet a lot of the the fodder what is being fed into the whole debate about um, cultural socialism the culture wars stems from the mass immigration that we've experienced over the last 20 years in particular so that now um, ethnic minorities, the group that I'm in, uh, form over 20% of the population in this country. And this has happened in the space of 20 years, as I say, when it has actually doubled. How do we um, actually make the case for lower levels of immigration, something that Migration Watch has been um, attempting to do for many, many years, and I believe has won the argument on that. All of a sudden, we find that it's being pushed by the very people who not so long ago were trying to reduce it. Uh, the Prime Minister announced only a few days ago that he was going to open up more routes for people to come from India to work here. My concern really is that migration is actually feeding the war and secondly, that the government has managed to focus attention on what is going on in the channel while people are actually um, forgetting about almost the fact that we are now at the levels of net migration that we have seen at their highest, really, for, for some years. I think that you take that first. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I think my own view is actually that migration per se has not necessarily been a big driver for wokeness. So what I think is, is in fact the relationship is that wokeness has shut down the ability to have a discussion about migration in a way because you know, if you talk about immigration, then they can associate you with being a racist, which means they don't have to discuss numbers, right? So I think that's sort of the relationship. Now, of course, what happens with migration is, you know, you have a population. Some people want ethnic change. Some people, a lot of people want it to be slower. Um, so you get a division, and the people who want it to be slower say, hey, where's our political voice? And when a political voice pops up to represent that view, it's shouted down as racist, right? So there is a sort of to some degree, the 
diversity interacts with, with what's already this rising wokeness to produce polarization. That's, I think, the main result of, of what you're talking about. Now, migration levels, from what I can tell, are at historic highs uh, now in Britain. So you're absolutely right that, that the government, which, I mean, migration was the main reason for voting uh, Brexit. The Tories came in on Brexit votes, and in fact, what they are doing is enabling you know, very high levels of migration. But that's an, another example of what I'm talking about with regard to cultural socialism, is that the more cultural socialism is dominant, the more that any topic that, that touches on race or gender or sexuality is off limits, whether that's family, crime, migration, you name it. All of these debates become very, very difficult, and mainstream politicians don't want to touch them which is why only populist politicians are generally comfortable on this terrain. So this is interacting very much with your concerns. The stronger cultural socialism is, the more reluctant politicians are going to be to address concerns of the average person, and the less we're going to get on top of migration. So I hope I answered your question. So yeah, with regards to point six about getting conservatives into the bureaucracy, um, how do we do that when a lot of the institutions, um, the NHS, for example, uh, asks that people, uh, that applicants actively promote diversity as a condition yeah. of, ap of getting in, uh, getting those jobs? And with regards to political neutrality, um, how do how do you suggest we sort of counter the counter argument that well, it, it's not political if it's not uh, just in relation to a particular party? Yeah, and, and I think this is where the um, a committed conservative party or conservative movement that was really committed to fighting cultural socialism would push much harder and with much greater scrutiny on, for example, number three, political neutrality. So if the NHS uh, introduces uh, equity and diversity statements, um, the government, it's one phone call, that's got to go right now. You know, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, Stonewall out of every government institution, any government-funded institution please disaffiliate now. That's what I'm talking about, really, is that by setting the terrain on free speech, so, for example, uh, forcing people to sign an EDI statement is a violation of freedom of conscience. It's, it's number two, free speech, freedom of expression, freedom of conscience. So a government that was serious about this, um, that was developing talent, that was, and what, what the government would be doing is it's sort of placing people who shared this view into these government bodies where they would essentially push reforms. If they were resisted, the government would have to either replace more people or simply increase um, the fines or, or issue guidance. I mean, this is what I'm talking about with getting serious about regulating and intervening in these institutions in a much, much more purposeful way, covered by the media, so celebrating or, or making very clear they wanted to resist us, we told them no, this has to be in the press, people have to become aware of it, and this has to become important for how they vote. So all of these things have to happen, I think, for the, because ultimately these institutions are just gonna replicate themselves and push to the left. It's sort of conquest law, right? These institutions will always recruit their own and drift in that cultural socialist direction unless actively resisted. I think there is something, is there not, called Sullivan's Law? The Sullivan's Law. Sullivan's Law, something automatically becomes uh, uh, left wing over time if it's not explicitly right wing. Oh, this gentleman here, sorry, been very patient. This way. Thank you very much. Uh, Nicholas Beecroft, founder of the Future of Western Civilization Project, um, which I've started just after 9 11 to try and work out, you know, how do we defend and rejuvenate our civilization? And as a psychiatrist, my approach to that really was to 
do what Emma's done, do what you've done, and really look into the toxic pathology of this and try and work out how to turn it around. Spent years doing that from within the elite, from within the institutions you're talking about. And, you know, in a sense, it's simple. It's dehumanization, it's cultural Marxism, it's relativism, it's uh, victim mentality, and, which is, and, and naivety as well. But anyway, after years of trying to work out how to do that and work out how do you persuade what I call the postmodern bigot to see the errors of their ways. I, I, after years of banging my head again, I, I realise it's incredibly difficult and I probably only ever converted about two people. But I wrote a couple of books on the subject and probably after 15 years, I realised that there were two big things that I missed. And one, one is the, and I'm interested in what both of you think, um, the, one is the confidence required to push back. In other words, the, the core pillars of Western civilization, of capitalism, of freedom, uh, sorry, of, of freedom of science, etc., um, actually requires you to believe, at the very least, in the sacredness of the human spirit, if not God um, and religion, basically. Well, God, really. So, in other words, um, that's the authority. On, sorry, that's the foundation on which our authority rests to actually say all these things. And, and so I'm interested in what you think about that. And the second part, which I've only realized in the last couple of years, after 20 years at this, is that I always try to understand how is it that all the big corporations are behind what's obviously a Marxist project whose goal is to destroy our civilization. And when you look at what just happened in the American election, and when you, when you look at what just happened with COVID and all of that, I realized that um, the big corporations funded by people like Vanguard, BlackRock, etc., are actually doing it, funding it, because they make money out of it. And so if we're going to push back, the punchline is we need God or at least human spirit, and we actually need to get right to the core of the people funding it. If we don't do that, we won't win. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot there, and, I, and, and a lot there I agree with. I mean, one thing, I, however, I would say is I think that with Marxism, this is, very, the, 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 this is not really about money and economics as much as I think some people... I mean, my own view, you can take a view that corporations are doing this to make money. Uh, they're supporting wokeness to make money. My own view is actually it probably costs them. I mean, you just have to look at Disney, for example. I, I think this is more... I think the model I would use is more like a mind virus, which is transmitted like COVID. Uh, and it's it seeped into a lot of these elite spaces because these are graduates of elite universities where the virus is most strong. Um, I don't actually think it's in the interests of a lot of these companies to do what they're doing, actually. And in many cases, some of them have taken a bath uh, because of these stances, but they can't resist their young staffers, these Gen Z and millennials who I've been showing you on these graphs who have these different attitudes coming into the workplace, pushing their activism, and the, the leaders of these companies don't know how to respond, so they cave in. Uh, but the other thing I should say is that I think they're also somewhat sympathetic. Anything that is wrapped in a nice candy wrapper that says equity, diversity, anti-racism, uh, they're going to buy because they aren't willing to unwrap the candy and see exactly how toxic it is. Um, and that's part of the challenge is that, that the cultural socialism trades under different labels and it wraps itself in nice-sounding things that you can't be against. It's like being against 
a poppy, you know? Um, so. <laughs> I think, can I just, because uh, Emma was talking earlier about what we could do on a daily basis. With these corporations, I mean, one thing we can do is boycott. We just simply stop buying Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Uh, eventually, yep. they'll get the message. Eventually, because it's the bottom line. Um, I want to ask you, before someone else comes in, Asher, um, the other possible route, and this is one that's coming up more and more, and I believe, is that we have to start building our own institutions. In other words, these are beyond reform. I mean, do you think that's viable? In America, we now have colleges, don't we? Like Hillsdale yes. College, and there's one in Austin, you know, where Catherine Stock's going to. Yeah. Isn't this a real option, you know, to actually start doing something positive, you know, rather than, as you say, banging your head on the brick wall for years? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's very important to start new institutions, but I'm more skeptical about... I mean, I'm involved in the University of Austin, for example, uh, and I think it's a great... Venture. Can you um, can you tell us a bit about that? People, people yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is sort of a new uh, university um, in in uh, Austin, Texas, which is intending to be a sort of free speech, open inquiry university. It's not going to have equity and diversity. Uh, it's not going to have all of the bureaucracy, and so it intends, and it's going to be cheaper because it doesn't have these layers of bureaucracy. But and I think that's very important. Um, but I think the problem is that. You know, an institution with sort of 350 years behind it, like Harvard or Oxford, or with the prestige and the alumni, and it's just very, very, very difficult. Uh, the university system is what, what we would call, uh, it, it benefits from network effects, so it's like Google or, or Facebook. The more users, uh, the more you have to use it, and so it sort of builds on itself, and I think it's just very difficult. Um, for new entrants to reform these systems. I actually think, now I think that's different when it comes to culture, media, which is more of a free market, easier to enter. Universities, very hard to enter uh, and disrupt. And so I think we have to rely on government regulation rather than bottom-up disruption for a lot of these institutions. I'd say the same about um, Facebook and Twitter, which are essentially common carrier monopolies. And common carrier monopoly, there's not going to be another Facebook or Twitter anytime soon, and therefore we need to go for regulation rather than disruption from below. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, I wanted to question the term cultural socialism and really question whether it's cultural socialism or cultural liberalism. Because, you know, I I'm skeptical of the idea that there's these sort of like, you know, Gramsciites, you know, going for institutions and trying to create the proletarian revolution and not really what we're really seeing is a sort of like liberal managerial class, you know, seeping through the universities and then infecting the institutions that way because we need to get the terms um, right because I think this all cultural Marxist, cultural socialist um, terminology is a bit outdated. It's not, it's not completely accurate to the ideology of the people who are in fact our institutions because they're not really you know Marxists are socialists in the traditional sense they're you know progressive liberals you know they're you know from leafy middle-class suburbs in London or the home counties you know that you know yes they may have these Gramskyite ideal of like you know take over the institutions and so forth but whether you know they're cultural socialists and Marxists I, I think um, that's really up for debate. Yeah, I, I, I just want to come back on that. I mean, I, and I think here's the thing: is I think we're so used to thinking about socialism in terms of unions and class and proletarian revolution and all the Marxist things, the, the materialist uh, socialism. And I think 
What I'm talking, the reason I use the term socialism is I'm harking back to sort of utopian socialism and Christian socialism, which is more cultural, more moralistic. That is really more the ancestor of today's cultural socialism than Marxism. Um, and so, you, so it isn't a contradiction to be an economic capitalist, but a cultural socialist. So economically, you kind of believe in free markets, uh, you believe in, in living well, uh, you want to get your kid into Harvard, but culturally, what you believe is, well, no, there can't be any gaps between men and women or black and white in, in the boardroom, in uh, wealth, in whatever. So you are a socialist in the sense of wanting to see equality of outcome of result, wanting to protect from harm the oppressed. And that's what I mean by socialism, not uh, material connotations about command and control uh, and instituting uh, a workers' revolution. I think that, and, and the reason I don't think cultural liberalism is what we're talking about is, in fact, cultural socialism is very much anti-liberal. It is anti-free speech. It is anti-due process. It is anti-equal treatment. It is anti-science. All the things which I think I would associate with classical liberalism are, in fact, in opposition. So that's why I would say cultural socialism is, in, in my view, the clearest term for identifying the problem uh, that we're facing. One of the things that I was sort of aware of, you, you get a constant diet every day of in this institution, that institution. I wonder whether it would be useful to draw some sort of map of woke institutions, who's in them, who appoints them, how are they funded, how often is it done, what is it that they're producing, what are the rules and regulations, etc. And then, for example, you know, you've had the Save Our Statues, you could link them all together in a map and different campaign groups and start bagging some FOIs in. If you start asking the British, you know, decolonise this, what about your Arab slave trade monuments, your Ottoman slave trade, your African slave Are you doing anything about that, or is it just the European slave trade? So that's the question. And just one very quick point on unconscious bias. We had that at my employer. I'll keep that a little bit discreet. But what <laughs> I went and did, I did some research on it, found the studies on it. There was a great government link to the studies and how they, did, they said it's not recommended for the public sector, da, 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 the privates and it was failed, and I actually put that up on screen at the end of a presentation on it, and the response, silence. There's no big woke horror story that comes for you. You just sit and they are, the woke, many of them are absolute wusses. And what you do find afterwards is that a lot of people say, oh, great that, I'm glad you put it up. So it's gonna be a lot of small things going back to your organizations, politely, factually, and then you just watch the silence and it tells you everything. And just a very quick plug, James Lindsay's new Discourses website. If you have a look on that, you know, the extent to which he's broken down in videos, in papers, breaking down work and its origins is an absolute goldmine for anybody who's opposing this Very, stuff. very helpful point. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Well, well just, just really quickly, what I will say, I mean, I think that map would be interesting. I mean, there is, a sim there is a sort of loose group of activists who are networked on Twitter who know each other, who are involved in a number of different organizations. But for the most part, I think this is very much like COVID. It's like a bottom-up virus uh, that once it captures your mind, you can convert other people. Uh, and these people are in these organizations. They are twice as prevalent amongst Gen Z, at least twice as prevalent. Um, so the younger employees are going to be a lot more woke, and this is one of the problems. Uh, but if you look at an institution like universities, which I've studied, but even other institutions, you have maybe 10 or 20% that are true believers in this stuff. 
Um, and then you have sort of a 50% in the middle, and then you have sort of 40 to 50% opponents. Uh, and that's sort of the structure, but that 10 to 20% true believers really can leverage their small numbers by, you know, essentially raising t taboos around racism. Oh, you're against what we're doing, you must be a racist or a transphobe or a sexist or whatever. So they're able to weaponize these taboos, which, give, which essentially gives them sort of force multiplication. Uh, and they're also able to wrap their cultural socialism in these nice sounding labels like equity and diversity, which a lot of the people in that middle 50 think, oh, well, what, what could be wrong with a policy that's just trying to help people? And so they'll fall in line because they kind of believe in, uh, you know, protecting uh, weak people, fragile people from harm. And so these are the dynamics we see in institution after institution. There's only a small group of true believers, but their power is magnified hugely by these processes. Eric, thank you very, very much. Thanks. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.